All right. Good morning, everybody. How you guys doing? Yeah, there is so much going on around here. Gabe's announcement's cutting into my preaching time up here. Don't worry. I'm going to take all the time I need because I can. But hey, you know, that, that just brings to mind, there is so much going on. And I know that by the time you listen to the announcements, she does a wonderful job of that. But by the time you do that, and then I teach a message that is so packed full of information, by the time you leave, you may have a vague recollection of something that we talked about. Take a moment as you leave. Don't just stream out the door, but take a minute, walk by, take a look at our chalkboard, take a look at the info table, and just kind of catch yourself up on those things. Uh, We don't want you to miss things. Again, there's so much cool stuff going on. The thing I hate the most is people going, when are you going to do that movie night? Because we're looking forward to that. That was last week. So... Try and do that. Um, The other thing is those flyers that are on the seats, the Christmas flyers. We put those out there for you. It's an interesting phenomenon that I've noticed over the years. If we put them by the door, people will take them, and the pile goes down, and and they go out into the world. If we put them on the seats, people have this thing like, I'm leaving it for the next guy, and they don't take them. Take them, please. Please take them. They're for you. You can make paper airplanes. I don't care what you do with them, but take them with you. Hopefully they end up on your fridge as a reminder about what's coming, okay? So take them with you. Hey, uh, again, welcome everybody. I'm, I want to dive right into the message. We've got so much to cover, but I want to take just a quick second and get everybody up to speed because I know not everybody's here every week. There's a lot that has happened since you were here, if you missed a couple weeks, we've been talking about Acts, the book of Acts. We're working our way through. So next week, we'll actually conclude the book of Acts, and then we'll go into a special prophecy uh, series for, for the Christmas season, which is going to be wonderful. Um, but we've been working our way through the book of Acts. The book of Acts starts out in chapter 1 with the Holy Spirit coming upon the apostles and the disciples to enable them to go out and to preach the gospel throughout the world. That's essentially what the entire book of Acts is about. Jesus commissioning everyone and the Holy Spirit coming upon them to enable them to go out and do what God has called them to do. That's their mission, and that filters down to us. That's our mission. So everything that we read in the Word of God, especially the New Testament, all points back to Jesus. It all points back to Jesus, not specifically just for our salvation, which a lot of people think that's where it ends, but it's so much more than that. Our job and the reason that we're still here walking this earth and haven't just been taken home is to spread the gospel of who he is, to make sure that everybody has the opportunity to not only hear the gospel, but to hopefully to come to know and accept Jesus Christ for for who he is and what he offers. And we see this time and time again, especially as we start going through Paul and all of his miscellaneous journeys that he does and Philip, and all the other evangelists that go out into the world to spread the gospel, we see that they meet resistance pretty much at every turn. It's not all rosy where everybody says, that sounds great, how can I sign up? There's a certain amount of that, but there's also an equal amount of opposition that they run into at every time. And so as I go into the message for today, this is going to be Paul's third missionary journey. Okay, basically his final missionary journey before he takes the big journey uh, to Rome next week. Um, You see that time and time again, he's got the opportunity to just walk away. To just say, look, I've told you this once. You don't want to hear it. Worse than not wanting to hear it. You're throwing rocks at me. You're stoning me. You're threatening to kill me. You're dragging me out of town and beating me up. You're doing all these things. How many of us at any point along that way would just go, I'm done trying to share this with you. How many of us do that? And maybe we give up at the first sign of resistance. Well-meaning, but we talk to somebody who maybe doesn't know Jesus, or we're not really sure about where they are in that walk, and we'll share Jesus with them. We'll kind of dip our toe in the water, kind of see how the reaction is. And if we get a negative reaction, I'm talking to me here, just say, okay, I'll go, find, I'll go find somebody who's a little bit more receptive. Or maybe even worse, you find that person who's antagonistic towards you, the person in the office. Well, I've tried several times to share the gospel with you. You don't want to hear it. Okay, I'm done. And we just leave it at that. 
But as we go through, especially when we go through this journey today, I want you to look for the common theme and just think about it in terms of how you would act given the very same scenarios. Would you just say, you guys are dead to me, okay? I've tried, I've tried, you drug me out of town, you beat up my friends, you kick me out of the city, I'm done with you, okay? And in fact, Paul in his flesh rises up a couple times and says just that, I'm done with you guys, but he can't. In his flesh, he says that, but in his spirit, he knows that he's got a mission, and that mission is to make sure that everybody has the opportunity to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, and he's not going to give up until he accomplishes that mission or until he's forced literally to stop. So as we go through this message, I want you to think about that in terms of your life. Where have we encountered maybe a little bit of a hiccup or a little bit of resistance, and we've stopped and maybe where the Lord would have you maybe go back and revisit at some point. So let's jump in. Let's go to our very first scripture here. This is how we open up. And having spent some time there, he left, this is Paul, he left and passed successively through the Galatian region and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Okay, this is, this is where we start. Now, the he is Paul. Some time there, if you remember, where we ended up after his second journey, okay, he basically goes back home. Let's see the map right here. He goes back home to Antioch. Antioch, if you haven't seen this map before, is this area right over here. It's in Syria. Israel is down here. Okay. And this area up in the green, that's Galatia. So what we do is that we join up with Paul as he's spending some time in Antioch, kind of recharging, recovering after his second journey, and he's getting ready to head back out. Okay, he says, I've spent enough time here, I need to go back out. And in his mind, his goal is essentially to head over here to Ephesus. Ephesus is over here in Asia Minor. It's down here in this kind of lower left corner of Asia Minor. In his mind, he's heading there, and he's basically going to spend some time there. But along the way, he travels through the same path basically that he's taken before, Tarsus, Derby, Iconium, Lystra, Antioch, and Sidia, and he's heading that direction with the goal to hit all these churches and just strengthen them and encourage them. And then when he gets to Ephesus, of course, that's when the real ministry in his mind is going to take place. Now, it also says that he traveled through this area called Phrygia. And now you'll never see or rarely see Phrygia on a map anywhere. What that is, is that's kind of this, this region here of Asia Minor, it's not listed that way now because even in Paul's time, it was centuries old. It hadn't existed for a long time. About 800 or so BC, it was conquered by a whole succession of different kingdoms would come in and they would conquer this area called Persia, with the very last one being the Roman Empire who came in and conquered it. And so this is basically a Roman, uh, Roman territory. And so it's not called Phrygia anymore, but Luke, being the writer of Acts, would have, that's kind of the historical name they would have called it. So when you see that, you're not going to find that on a map. That's what this is. So Paul is traveling through this region, strengthening the churches, and that's what he's doing. Now, if I had my, my announcer voice or my comic book voice, I would say, meanwhile, in Ephesus... So as he's traveling through, this is going on in Ephesus. Now, a Jew named Apollos, an Alexandrian by birth, an eloquent man, came to Ephesus, and he was mighty in the scriptures. This man had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he was speaking and teaching accurately the things concerning Jesus, being acquainted only with the baptism of John. And he began to speak out boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. Priscilla and Aquila, if you remember or if you weren't here, Priscilla and Aquila, good friends of Paul's. He met them, former tent makers, and he actually leaves them in Ephesus at the end of his last journey and, and encourages them to set up a church there. So they are the ones who start this church, a home church at the beginning in Ephesus, and it starts to blow up. And that's kind of where, in his mind, he's heading back to, to, to encourage them and to help them build up their church. But Priscilla and Aquila, they hear this Apollos teaching, and they say, man, this guy, this guy is powerful. Scripture says he's powerful in the Scriptures. He knows 
the scripture. He's teaching. Some accounts say that he's very attractive. He's a good-looking guy. He's a powerful man. He's very charismatic, good speaker. This Apollos is really somebody that people want to listen to. Okay, some people say, in fact, um, some of the research that I've done, a lot of the books in the Bible, you know, they're not attributed to a single author. You don't know who wrote them. But a lot of scholars say that Apollos is probably who wrote the book of Hebrews. Okay, a lot of similarities to the way that he spoke, the time frames, the places, the things he talks about, kind of point back towards Apollos. We don't know that for sure, but it could have been. Now, this is about the summer of 53, that this is all happening. Now, 53 to 57, so this is about a four-year... Now, when I say 53, this is not 1953. <laughs> this is double aught 53 when Paul is out doing this. But he hears of all this stuff happening. And who Apollos is is very interesting. Apollos is a disciple of John the Baptist. Okay, if you remember, John the Baptist was the precursor to Jesus. He was basically the, the herald that arrived to tell the world and try and prepare the world for the coming of a Messiah who is Jesus. John the Baptist spent his entire ministry pointing towards Jesus as the coming Messiah. But Apollos was a disciple of John the Baptist. So John the Baptist taught exclusively from the Old Testament prophecy about a coming Messiah, right? Because that was the Testament then, not the old one. That's all they had then. That's what they taught out of. So Apollos was very well versed in that. Okay, a lot of the, of the um, research that I see points to the fact that Apollos may well have been there when John the Baptist actually baptized Jesus. Since he was a follower of John the Baptist, he traveled with him, he was there all the time. And so he may well have known Jesus because he was there and saw him get baptized. How cool would that be if you saw that? But so Apollos understood those things about a coming Messiah. He understood those Old Testament scriptures pointing about that, and he may well have even been there to see Jesus. He acknowledged Jesus as the coming Messiah, but there are a lot of gaps in what he knew. He didn't know about the Holy Spirit. He didn't know about the baptism of forgiveness that Jesus offered. He only knew about the baptism of repentance, okay, that John the Baptist was all about. So eloquent speaker, very, very fervent and on fire for Jesus, but he had a lot of gaps in his teaching. And Priscilla and Aquila, they see this and they decide we're going to pull him in and we're going to fill in those gaps. We're going to make sure that he understands. And so this is where we are. Took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately so that he could go out and be a more effective missionary, basically. And this is what they do. They say he's, he's understanding this. He's really coming to, to understand accurately those things concerning Jesus. So now we're going to commission him as a church and we're going to send him out. He wants to be a missionary, just like Paul. He wants to go out and spread the gospel. So we're going to commission him and do that. And so the church in Ephesus pulls him in. They commission him to actually travel out to Europe and become a missionary in Europe. And specifically where he wants to go is he wants to go to Corinth. And he ends up going to Corinth. That's exactly what he does, is he heads over there. And we know that he's very powerful because later on, we see in Scripture a couple hints that he's actually developing his own following there in Corinth. And it starts to become a little bit of a problem with people following him rather than Jesus. So this is where we are. And that all happens while Paul is uh, traveling through. Now, Apollos leaves, goes to Corinth and Paul arrives in Ephesus. Paul arrives in Ephesus, and one of the first things he does is he starts going around and revisiting the disciples there and, and the people that he knows, and he meets a few guys on the street, actually a, a group of guys on the street. This is Acts 19, verses 1 to 7. I'll read this to you. It happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the upper country and came to Ephesus. Okay, he arrives in town and found some disciples. He said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said to him, no, we've not even heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, into what then were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. Paul said, well, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling people to believe in him who was coming after him, that is, in Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized then in the name of Lord Jesus. And when Paul laid his hands upon them, the Holy Spirit came on them, 
and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. And there were in all about 12 men. Okay, this is important. If you remember several times when people received the Holy Spirit, and the way we receive the Holy Spirit is simply through confessing a belief in Jesus. You become a disciple of Jesus Christ. You confess that he is Lord, and you receive that Holy Spirit. But back then at this time, sometimes it would come upon people in a dramatic way. And that's the case right here. The Holy Spirit came upon these 12 men who were there in a dramatic way. They began prophesying. They began speaking in tongues. And this was done back then from time to time in that dramatic way in order to emphasize that, okay, they knew Jesus. They accepted Jesus as the Messiah, but they didn't really have that true faith in Jesus as Messiah and who he was. And it's only through that faith that you receive the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit comes upon these men in that dramatic way as evidence to those from the outside that they could see this is different. This is much more than just I'm a follower of this man. There is something different that has happened. And they want that to be evident. So this is how come um, that it's such a dramatic event here. So this is what has happened. Apollos had talked to them about Jesus. They knew all about Jesus, but they did not understand the new covenant of Jesus because Apollos didn't understand at that time. So Paul is fixing these kinds of things, and he's speaking to them. He, he does a good job there. Then he goes into the synagogue, and he starts preaching in the synagogues. Um, scripture says that he preaches in the synagogues for about three months. He's there, okay? So he's preaching constantly. And they're accepting him, and many are believing in Jesus as the Messiah. But it gets to a point where Paul kind of wears out his welcome in the synagogue there. I could see they're seeing like, okay, it was cute while he was here just talking about this Jesus as the Messiah. But now all of our people are starting to believe in Jesus as the Messiah, and we have to stop this, or we'll have nobody in our, in our synagogue. So they get tired of him, and basically, rather than to stone him or something, thankfully, this time, they just kick him out. They just say, get, get out of our synagogue. You can't preach here anymore. So he goes around. He's looking for a place to preach, and he ends up finding this school. It's called the School of Tyrannus. We've got this on screen, Acts 19.9. But when some were becoming hardened and disobedient, these are those in the synagogue, speaking evil of the way before the people, he withdrew from them and took away the disciples, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. Interesting thing about the school of Tyrannus, it was actually a well-known and documented from outside the Bible sources as, a, as like, a, like a prestigious college in that area. And from 11 o'clock to 4 o'clock every day was their afternoon break in the school of Tyrannus. Tyrannus may have been the owner, he may have been one of the teachers there. We don't know exactly who Tyrannus is or if that's just what they called it. But how many of you know if you were signing up for classes and this, who's my instructor? Tyrannus. I'm going to drop that one right now. That's what I would do with a name like that. But from 11 to 4 every day, the school was just sitting empty. And so they agreed to let Paul go in there and teach. And so for two years, Paul teaches out of the school of Tyrannus And he does a lot of amazing things. One of the first things that he does is as he's there, now remember, he's there for two years. Apollos is off in Corinth. He starts getting word back from Corinth that there's starting to be a little bit of friction there. There's starting to be some some splits and some factioning within the church there at Corinth. Some people are adhering to Peter, and they're saying, hey, Peter's our guy. Whatever he says, that's what we're going with. Some of them are saying, hey, we remember when Paul was here and what Paul taught, and Paul's our guy. And then a whole other group is starting to follow Apollos, and they're saying, Apollos is our guy. And so there start to be these different groups. Paul realizes this, and he says, that, that can't be. We can't have all these different factions within the same church. So he writes 1 Corinthians to them from the school of Tyrannus, and he writes to them, and he says, look, Jesus is your focus. Keep your eyes on Jesus. That's where your eyes ought to be, not on the individuals. And that's another teaching for another day, but that's what happens while he's here. He writes, uh, he writes that letter, 1 Corinthians, and he sends it off with Titus. Now, when Paul set off at the very beginning from Antioch, he probably left 
He had an entourage with him, but he probably left with Timothy. Timothy was with him. Titus was with him, the same Titus that he writes a letter to later. Um, Phoebe was with him. And a Phoebe, if you remember, is that me? Phoebe was um, Paul's sister. And at the very beginning, when Paul is, is growing up in Tarsus, his parents send him to Jerusalem to get his schooling and his training. And he stays there with his older sister. His older sister is Phoebe, who now is going with him. So, um, so Timothy, Phoebe, um, who else is with him? Titus, uh, a few others that, that go with him. Anyway, so that's his group that he's traveling with. So he sends that letter off to Corinth uh, with Titus. That'll be important just a little bit later. So he sends that off. Um, Acts 19.10 says, This took place for two years so that all who lived in Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Okay, so it's powerful. People are coming all over Asia, are starting to hear of all the teaching that Paul is doing at this school. And, and they are, people are converting and coming to know Jesus all over Asia. This is, this is great. So amazing things were happening. Even Acts 19, 11 to 12 says, God was performing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that handkerchiefs or aprons were even being carried from his body to the sick. So people were saying, hey, just touch my handkerchief, touch my apron, and I'm going to go take it to my sick relative to heal them. This is the kind of power that people were placing in Paul. Some of them understood that it was through the Holy Spirit, but many of them attributed it to Paul. And so this started to become a little bit of a problem. People were seeing miraculous things, very, very powerful things happen through Paul and through the rest of the disciples that were with him. And there's one group particularly that it caught their eye, and this was a group of magicians or sorcerers. If you remember, we were introduced to Simon Bar-Jesus a while ago, who was a false prophet traveling around doing magic. There was a large group. Okay? One of the things that this group of, of magicians did, or false prophets, uh, was they were exorcists. They considered themselves exorcists. And they would travel around trying to drive out demons from people. Okay? A lot of it was staged so that they could get money. Okay? None of it was really happening. But what they saw is they saw, look, just even, even a garment that Paul touched drives demons out of people. They saw this happening, and they said, we, we want that. We're going to latch on to that. So they decided that they would start trying to cast out demons in the name of Jesus, just like Paul was doing. And let's see how that works out for them. Acts 19 14 to 17. We've got that up on the screen right here. Seven sons of one Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. Now, let me stop right there really quick. The Jewish culture is very, very good about documenting who their priests are and who their chief priests are. There's no priest anywhere in documentation who's named Sceva, which I think is why they say one Sceva. It's kind of, it should have quotes around it. Um, There's no chief priest named Skiva. So chances are this was a guy who was posing as a chief priest. Okay. So seven sons of one Skiva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this, calling on the name of Jesus to drive out demons. And the evil spirit answered and said to them, I recognize Jesus and I know about Paul, but who are you? No respect, right? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leapt on them and subdued all of them and overpowered them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. That did not turn out the way that they had planned probably, right? This became known to all, both Jews and Greeks who lived in Ephesus and fear fell upon them and all fell upon them all and the name of the Lord Jesus was being magnified. Okay, that's a powerful thing. These seven sons were probably pretty well known in that region, traveling around doing this, and they were well and thoroughly debunked as having no power. And at the same time, they were, sawing the, they were seeing the power that Paul had through Jesus, okay, the things that he was doing. And so the power of Jesus and the name of Jesus was being magnified all over the region, so much so that Scripture says in this region, so witchcraft and sorcery, and divination and all these things was such a popular thing there. 
that there was, it was a major uh, source of income and commerce there. Scripture says that actually all of the sorcerers, magicians, got together and decided we, we don't want any part of this thing we've been doing. In fact, we're going to take all of our, our potions and our books and all of our magic paraphernalia that we have, and we're going to gather together and we're going to burn them because we know they don't mean anything anymore. They're useless. So they bring them together, they put them in a big pile, and they burn them. Scripture actually says that it was 50,000 silver pieces worth of books and material that they got together to burn. Now, whether that was an actual accounting of dollar amounts, I don't know. But one silver piece is a day's wages in that time. 50,000 days wages. I did the math, and going by minimum wage today, that's over $4 million dollars. Okay, was it actually that much? We don't know, but what it indicates is that magic and stuff was so prevalent in that area that there was so much of it, and they all just decided this is worthless. So they turn away from it, they burn it, and they come to understand the power and the authority of Jesus. This is a big thing that's happening in this region, this region that is so steeped in, in witchcraft and mysticism, now seeing the power of Jesus. But as the gospel continues to spread, Paul starts thinking about what's next for him. One of the things as he does every now and then is he starts kind of musing to himself, I'd love to see Rome someday. In fact, maybe when I'm done here, I'll head over to Rome. This is kind of what's in his mind. Why does scripture just say that? Because it immediately moves on, doesn't expand about that. It's kind of prophetic vision because next week in our message, we'll find out that Paul actually does end up in Rome just not under the circumstances he probably was thinking of. But anytime things are going well for Paul, something happens. What happens next? What happens next? Somebody's got a problem with the fact that Paul is doing all these things in the name of Jesus. Those people, this time, happens to be a man named Demetrius. Demetrius is the head of what could best be called the, the crafter's union. Okay, so they have silversmiths, um, they have all kinds of different artists, and their job is to make idols. Okay, make all this magician paraphernalia, make idols for people to worship, specifically of Artemis, which was their big, their big idol in that area. Um, they would do this, and so he gets them together. He's got a problem, because now their very livelihood is going away. Because Paul is telling everybody, all these things you've been buying are worthless, and they're believing it, and they're believing it. So what we find, Acts 19, 24 to 26, for a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, was bringing no little business to the craftsmen. Okay, double negative there. No little means a lot. Bringing a lot of business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen of similar trades and said, men, you know that our prosperity depends upon this business. You see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a considerable number of people, saying that gods made with hands are no gods at all. They got a problem with this. Okay? Paul is messing with their livelihood. He's messing with their culture. They're having a problem with this, and they actually fly into a rage. They're basically incited into a riot. Okay, which you could see that happening, right? You can see them flying into a rage and, and rioting, and people are coming from out, out of their houses, and they're joining this riot, and there's becoming this big, giant mob, and they're all angry at something. Some of them don't even know what they're angry about, which is funny. I put this on the screen. Not deep theology here, but maybe it applies to today. Acts 19.32. So then, some... We're shouting for one thing and some another. For the assembly was in confusion and the majority did not know for what reason they had come together. We just know we're having a riot. Grab your stuff. Let's go. That happens today. In our culture, we are so driven just to be enraged about something. We've, somebody somewhere is doing something to us. Let's get together and be angry about it. That was happening there just as it happens today. But here's the problem. When there starts to be a, a group like that, and they're on the verge of a riot, okay? They're going to start tipping over chariots and lighting them on fire. And Okay, maybe not. Maybe not. 
Maybe not. But this is on the verge of happening. And so one of the men in the group, his name is Alexander, he sees that this is on the verge of a riot. And that's going to be a problem because inciting a riot or being a part of a riot is punishable by death by Roman law. So he sees this is starting to attract some attention and this is going to be a problem. So he starts trying to calm them down, saying, let's, let's bring it down a notch so that we all don't get arrested and thrown in jail. In fact, the mayor of the town actually comes in and does this one step further, and he says, hey, if, if they're doing anything illegal, let's take them to court, okay? Let's, let's take them to court. Eventually, the crowd disperses between Alexander and between the mayor of the town. They're trying to calm everything down, and it, and it basically reaches just kind of a simmering point rather than a, a boiling point. Paul sees this, though, and he goes, maybe it's time for me to move on. Maybe I've been here two years. I've done all this ministry Okay, he sees all this stir that's starting to, and maybe he's starting to learn, if I leave now, I may not get drug out of town and stoned. So he leaves now, and he actually heads for the coast. Okay, show me that map again one, one time. He heads up the coast. Now, he's, he's here in Ephesus, which is right up here above my hands, and then he goes up to the top left corner of this orange area. It's called Troas. Troas is a, is a pretty major seaport. In fact, if you're traveling to the European continent, almost everybody traveled through Troas because it was the closest. It was the shortest, uh, safest trip across the Aegean there rather than just to go straight across the Mediterranean. So he went up to Troas. He went up to Troas for a couple reasons. One, he hadn't seen his friend Titus in a while. I sent Titus off to Corinth with a letter, and he was supposed to come back. I haven't seen him in a while. Let's go up to Troas because certainly that he's going to travel back through there. We'll just wait for him here. So he goes up to Troas and he's waiting for his friend Titus. His friend Titus actually never does show. Okay, we don't know until later actually what happens to him, but Titus doesn't show up there. But while Paul is waiting, he decides, well, I'm here. I'm going to do a couple things. I'm going to write another letter to the Corinthians because I've heard even more reports about what's going on there, and they're still not quite getting it. So Paul writes 2 Corinthians from there. And he also decides, I'm just going to go ahead and start a church. So he gathers some disciples together and actually starts another church there in Troas. Okay, so he's finished with that. He decides, all right, Titus isn't coming. I'm going to head over there. In fact, I'm going to head down to Corinth myself and see what's going on. So he sails across up into Macedonia, <clears throat> excuse me, and decides that he's going to head down towards Corinth, okay? And he does that. He stops by all those churches in Thessalonica and Apollonia and Philippi. He hits all those churches all the way down, eventually ending up down the southern end in Corinth. That's where he is. This time, he's got a pretty good reception in Corinth, okay? He's sent them two letters. The church is getting stronger and stronger. And so he has a different experience this time. They're actually... Actually being pretty decent to him. While he's in Corinth, teaching there, he decides, I'm going to write a letter now to the church in Rome. So he writes Romans while he's in Corinth on this trip and sends his sister Phoebe, take this letter and, head, and take this to Rome. So Phoebe parts ways with him there, his sister, and heads off to Rome. And that's what happens there. Now, while he's in Corinth, he decides, okay, we're coming up on spring, okay, and that's, that's when the, um, the Pentecost festival happens down in Jerusalem, and I want to be back in Jerusalem by Pentecost. So he says, okay, what I'm going to do is rather than go back by land, I'm going to just catch a boat here in Corinth, and I'm going to sail all the way down here and bypass all that. It'd be so much quicker. That's his plan. Just head straight down to Jerusalem by boat. But while he's there, he and his disciples start getting word that there's a plot against him, okay? Somebody's not entirely happy with the influence that he's having there, and they hear that there's a plot against him, and what they're going to do, the plot is specifically by the Jewish uh, uh, leaders in that region, they're going to wait until he's out in the middle of this vast ocean on a ship, and they're going to hijack or pirate the ship. They're going to kill Paul, and they're going to throw him overboard, thus ending their Paul problem without necessarily pointing back to them, because that's the last thing they wanted, is to be seen as, you know, they've already done this to Jesus, and they're getting a bad reputation for that. They don't want to be seen as, as killing Paul. 
So they decide they're going to do that, but Paul gets wind of that and says, okay, what we'll do, rather than to go out on ship by myself where I'm all vulnerable, we'll just stay together as a group and we'll head back by land. And that's what they do. So his plan was to head by boat straight. He decides I'm going to circle around and I'm going to head back the way I came for the most part and avoid all that potential uh, piracy that's going on out there in the sea. So he decides, he gets up here uh, into uh, Neapolis and this area up here in Macedonia and then sails directly across to Troas. Just in a small boat, goes over to Troas. That's where he's theoretically going to catch the larger ship that'll take him all the way there. While he's in Troas, now he's in kind of a hurry. He doesn't want to linger there for days or weeks or months because he's trying to get back to Jerusalem for Pentecost. But he does want to stop by Troas and kind of say his goodbyes and and talk to the church and encourage them a little bit more. Uh, Maybe he knows this might be the last time that he's going to get there, but he decides he wants to go by and he wants to hang out with them and talk to them. So this is what he does. Acts 20, 7 to 12, this happens while he's there. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, let me show you something where it says we right there. Remember who wrote Acts? Acts was written by Luke. And when it says we, that's first person, meaning Luke was there. That's one of the reasons, one of the clues that we use when we're going through Scripture to see, like, now, was, was he there? Was he not there? So Luke was still with him. When we were gathered together to break bread, Paul began talking to them, intending to leave the next day. So he's going to leave the next day. This is my last chance to talk to you. And he prolonged his message until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered together. And there was a young man named Eutychus sitting on the windowsill, sinking into a deep sleep. And as Paul kept on talking, he was overcome by sleep and fell down from the third floor and was picked up dead. Fell out the window from the third floor and was picked up dead. But Paul went down and fell upon him. And after embracing him, he said, do not be troubled for his life is in him. Raises him from the dead. When he had gone back up and had broken bread and eaten, he talked with them a long while until daybreak and then left. So he preaches all through the night, even with that little intermission of of a man falling out of the window dead. Verse 12, they took the boy away alive and were greatly comforted. Let's go back to the previous screen really quick. A couple interesting things about this. I've always read this, and maybe you have, as like, man, Paul must have got long-winded. These guys were all there, but it must have been some snoozer of a sermon because at some point, everybody's falling asleep, and this boy falls asleep and falls out the window. How many of us kind of heard it taught like that or read it like that? I did. Until you start looking at some of these clues. Remember, Luke is very much into documenting what was happening, and so he leaves us some clues. Why would verse 8 even be there? There were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered together. That seems pointless. Why would he even bother telling us about that? Here's why. What happens when you've got a small room and many, many lamps for hours and hours on end? It gets stuffy, but more so it consumes all the oxygen, right? And what do you need to stay awake, much less alive? Oxygen. So this boy sitting upstairs in this, in this higher region, okay, all those gases from the lamps were accumulating in this upper region, and basically he was overcome by fumes and falls asleep and falls out. I read that differently as I was studying it this time and went in and looked into it, and, and that's exactly what had happened. It wasn't Paul taught a snoozer of a message. Frankly, I never believed that Paul had a snoozer of a message in him in any way. Couldn't imagine falling asleep during one of his messages, no matter how long it was. But this is why. So the boy didn't just get bored and fall asleep. He was literally overcome by gases. Why is that important? Why do I even take the time to explain that? Because the Bible is real. The Bible's real. If you were just writing a book to try and show people how they should act, and this is how great Jesus is, would you put in details like this? People were overcome by fumes and he fell out. Now, obviously, the point of that passage there is that Paul, through the power of Jesus Christ, raised him from the dead. That's huge. Now, Paul had been doing that all along, and that, that, in, in that day and age, wasn't that unusual by this point. 
They saw that happening. We don't see that much these days. I think it's because we're not looking for it in many cases. So anyway, after this, Paul decides, okay, I've done that. I'm going to head back. I'm going to catch the ship, and I'm going to head back towards Syria. Again, he wants to be back there by Pentecost. So natural stop would be that he's going to stop at Ephesus. Show me that map again really quick. He's going to stop at Ephesus, but he knows he's running short on time. So if I'm going to get down here by Pentecost, I really need to not get hung up in Ephesus. But his friends are there. He started a church there. He wants to stop and encourage them, at least on his way back. So what he decides he's going to do is he's going to stop at this place called Miletus, which is here on the port. It's about 10 miles from Ephesus. He's going to stop at Miletus, and he's going to send a messenger into into Ephesus, get the leaders of that church, Priscilla and Aquila and whoever else is there, and have them come back, and they're going to meet there in Miletus so that he can encourage them. And that's what he does. Acts 20, 17, 17 to 24, and I'll read this to you, but just picture the scene there. He's gathered these leaders together. He's getting ready to head home to Jerusalem. For Miletus, he went to Ephesus and called to him the elders of the church. And when they had come to him, he said to them, you yourselves know from the first day that I set foot in Asia, how I was with you the whole time serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials, which came upon me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you publicly and from house to house, solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, bound by the Spirit, I'm on my way to Jerusalem." Okay, meaning it wasn't just his idea, I want to be there for Pentecost, okay, but the Holy Spirit is actually telling him, I need you to go. Not knowing what will happen to me there, verse 23, except that the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in every city, saying that bonds and affliction await me. So all he knows, he knows it's not going to be good for him there, but he's doing it anyway because the Holy Spirit is holding him to that. And then Acts 20, 24, the very last one. I've got this one on screen. But I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself, so that I may finish my course and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. He knows it's not going to turn out well for him, but he has to go because the Holy Spirit has convicted his heart and told him, not only it's going to end badly for you, but I need you to go anyway. How many of us would do that? If we knew that it was not going to turn out well for us, how many of us would be willing to walk into that situation anyway? This is another reason why Paul was hand-chosen by God to do this ministry, because he is zealous and he will not be deterred. I know I would be, If the Holy Spirit told me over and over and over again, it's not going to turn out well for you, and then I heard another voice in my head saying, I need you to go there, I'd be going, I'm hearing one of those wrong, I'm going to choose the one that says go there, and I'm not going there. Because in every city, not only do people tell him it's not going to turn out well, but the Holy Spirit does too. But he takes a moment before he leaves and he warns him to be on guard. He says this, Acts 20, 28 to 30, you got that on screen too. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he has purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise, speaking perverse things, to draw away the disciples after them. He warns them to look out from within and from without. This is not going to be easy. He warns them of that. And he knows all too well that it's never easy to be a disciple of Jesus. So Paul sails from Miletus. Show me the map one more time. One last time. He sails from Miletus, and he's heading down here towards... uh, He wants to go to Jerusalem, but he ends up heading to Tyre because that's where the ship is going. And at this point, Paul is just cargo. <laughs> um, Acts 21, 4 to 6 says, After looking up the disciples, we stayed there seven days waiting for the next ship to come in. Okay, remember, he's trying to get there 
for Pentecost, but he had to wait for the next ship to come because he was just cargo. He wasn't, he wasn't chartering the love boat to head out there. He was just cargo. After looking up the disciples, we stayed there seven days, and they kept telling Paul through the Spirit not to set foot in Jerusalem. When our days there had ended, we left and started on our journey. While they all, with wives and children, escorted us until we were out of the city, after kneeling down on the beach and praying, we said farewell to one another. Then we went on board the ship, and they returned home again. Okay, again, they're begging him not to go, telling him this is not going to turn out well, but he knows he has to go. So finally, he takes, this, he takes this ship, and they land up here in Tyre. Tyre is a seaport. It's right up here. Now, he wants to head down to Jerusalem. It would be much closer if he landed down here. But he lands in Tyre because that's where the big cargo ships went. Okay? So he goes there, and they're unloading their ship, and now he's waiting for a smaller kind of a coastal shuttle ship to take him down to Caesarea where he needs to be. And as he's there, he decides, I'm going to go ahead and visit the church here because I'm waiting. There's a schedule for their ships too. I know when it's coming. I'm going to visit the ship here. So he decides, I'm going to go ahead and stop by and talk to the, uh, talk to the, the um, believers there. So he catches that, <coughs> talks to the believers there, encourages that church, then decides, I'm going to catch this boat, not decides, this plan. I'm going to catch the boat and I'm going to head down to Caesarea Maritima, which is the last one. Now, if you go to Israel with us, and by the way, small commercial for our Israel trip in 2019, um, if you go, this is one of the places that we'll go. And this is actually what Caesarea Maritima looks like today. It was the, the major seaport, major capital of the Roman province in that area. And you can still, you can walk through the Colosseum there and see where the chariot races were held. Uh, very, very cool place to be. So we'll, we'll end up seeing that. That's what it looks like today. Bustling, bustling port at that point. And that's where he goes. When he gets there, he's got to wait again for the very last section, just recharging himself for the next trip. And when he's there, he stays with a man named Philip. This man named Philip, he's got another name that we know him by as Philip the Evangelist. Now, if you remember the last time that Philip and Paul met, Paul was better known as Saul. And when they met, Saul was persecuting the Christians. And he actually ended up chasing Philip out of town, out of Jerusalem. And that's what started Philip's evangelistic trips. His going out to share the gospel. So Saul at that point was the impulse for that because of fear. And at this point, these years later, Philip is actually welcoming Paul into his home and staying with him. Now Acts uh, 21, 9 to 11 talks about this. Now this man, they're talking about Philip, had four virgin daughters who were prophetesses. As we were staying there for some days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt. So he takes Paul's belt and binds his own feet and hands and said, this is what the Holy Spirit says. In this way, the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. So this prophet is telling him this. Every town he's gone to, they've been telling him this and warning him not to go. Again, how many of us would have given up at some point Saying, I've already told them about it, and if they don't want to hear it, I'm not going back there. I'm not going to revisit the same ground where I didn't find fruit before. But Paul won't be discouraged. Acts 21, 13, Paul responds this to him. Paul answers, what are you doing? Weeping and breaking my heart. For I'm ready not only to be bound, but even to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we fell silent, remarking, the will of the Lord be done. Prophetic words, as we, as we now know, uh, but next week we'll talk about more about what happens to Paul there. But so Paul decides to leave, and this is where he goes. So as I wrap this up really quick, I want you to think about all the opportunities along the way that Paul had to just say, I'm done. I'm out. I've gone on two journeys. I've been beaten. I've been stoned. I've been drug out of town. I've been left for dead. I've been run out of every good town that I've come through. And I've seen some fruit, yes, but I've seen huge opposition every way. I think that's a pretty good missionary career. What do you think? 
I'm gonna head back to Corinth. They had amazing beaches there, and I'm just gonna chill on the beach and lay low. How many of us would do that? Paul doesn't do that because Paul knows, number one, his reason for being here is to share Jesus Christ and who he is and the truth of his resurrection. That's what Paul's mission is, and he will stop at nothing. He doesn't consider his life to be of any value when compared to the mission that he's got. In fact, his life is simply a tool to be used to accomplish the mission that the Lord has given him. It's not, I need to save my life, and I'm going to stop spreading the word of Jesus. He knows that he may well give up his life, but that he has this burden in his heart from the Holy Spirit to share the word of Jesus. He knows what the ultimate prize is, and it's not a better life here on earth. The ultimate prize, church, is to make sure that everyone that we know and everyone that we come across has had the opportunity to know Jesus Christ. And not the legalistic law part that doesn't give life of Jesus Christ, but the grace and the mercy that comes through him. And it's our responsibility. Have you ever thought about why a good, loving father just doesn't call us home? Why aren't we all in heaven with him now? If you confess Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you're saved, boom, you ought to be on an express ride to heaven. Why aren't you there? We're not there because not everybody has heard and not everybody knows. And until that happens, we've got a job to do here on earth. That's what we're here for. And that's why Paul can be so bold and confident, and he can say things like this. I want to revisit one scripture one more time. Acts 20, 24, Paul says, I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself so that I may finish my course in the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. Worship team, you guys can come on up. That mission to testify to the grace of God that was given to Paul is the same mission that we have. It's the same purpose. And so as we go into our response, I want you to think about that question that I asked you at the beginning. Who have we maybe shared the gospel with once or twice or kind of done a drive-by and not really have the kind of fruit that we want. How many times have we shared the gospel with somebody going, there, I did my part. They didn't fall on their knees and repent and give their life to Jesus, so I'm done. I've done my part. What if Paul did that? What if Paul said, hey, I've tried and I've tried, and they don't want to hear it, so I'm done? Paul didn't do that. He was able to share the knowledge of who Jesus was and start a movement in Asia and in Europe that just made the church blow up with people who are hearing the knowledge of who Jesus is for the first time. And when they really hear who he is, not just of him, but they come to know who he is, that is so attractive. So our job is to revisit those people that maybe we didn't see fruit from before, but don't give up. So we go into response here. I want you to take part of this first song and just pray and ask the Lord to show you. Who have I shared the gospel with before, but I maybe found some resistance or I didn't find the, the, the kind of, of fruit and the, and the excitement that I was hoping for. It didn't look like I thought it was, so I gave up. Maybe the Lord wants you to revisit that person or that situation and share the gospel one more time or two more times or three more times, however many times he wants you to do that. But we'll only know that if we're open to it. If we realize that our life is of no account when you hold it against spreading the knowledge of who Jesus is. So take this time, take this first minute or so and just pray and let the Lord illuminate somebody who you need to revisit just one more time. And let's be honest about that. When you're finished with that, we can move into communion. At the crosses, we've got juice and bread and crackers you can serve yourself. Gabe and I will be up here. We would love to serve you. We've got wine. And if you're new here, you just dip the bread or the cracker in the wine and take the communion that way. But we can do that with thankful hearts that through what Jesus did, we have everything we need to accomplish the mission that we're here for. So would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we just, we want, we want to be more like Paul. We want to see 
amazing signs and wonders and people come to the knowledge of who Jesus Christ is through what you do in us. Through our knowledge of who you are, Lord, we want to be able to share that knowledge and bring people to you. Because, Lord, our work is not done until everyone has had the chance to hear of your grace and your mercy and your open arms and your acceptance of everyone who is your children. So, Father, I just pray now that as we're here that you just show us where you need us to be. Show us somebody who needs just one more word. Show us places where that ground, where that seed has been planted. It's been watered, and now it's ready for harvest. Father, we want to be workers in your kingdom. Show us, show us where that harvest is and who we need to revisit. And maybe it's just rewatering, but we want to be used by you in the kingdom, Lord. So show us who that is, and Lord, we then promise to be faithful in what you show us because we love you so much and we love what you have done for us. The fruit we see in our lives, Lord, we want to share with others. So, Father, we thank you for empowering us through the Holy Spirit to accomplish what you call us to do. Lord, we're here, and we ask that you call us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks, church.
Come baptize us. Come baptize us. 